Mrs. Crosby. And uh, I want to give a couple of quick announcements before uh, we dive in to the passage today. But uh, the first is this, that many of us are praying for Diana Havercroft, her mom who had taken ill last week. And if you haven't heard yet, uh, Diana's mom passed on to the presence of the Lord. And so uh, that was a prayer request, actually, because of her illness that God would just take her home. But of course, Diana still misses her mom. There's a private uh, family funeral this Thursday, but be praying for Paul and Diana. Please be, feel free to send Diana a note and just let her know that you're praying for her. Her email is in the church directory if you need it. You can email Jenna at the office. She can get it to you. But I know she'd be happy to hear from you and uh, to know that you're praying. Uh, and then, as I announced a bit last week, but be praying over specifically the next couple of weeks for the capital campaign. As God has provided just in amazing ways, um, we're so thankful. You know, in June, we announced that we need another million dollars. Basically, it was 900,000, but I'm calling it a million uh, for the building. It had gone up another million. So initially, we bought into this at like 16 million. It's now a $22 million building. And uh, we're thankful that in July and August, the Lord provided $270,000 uh, now in unpledged gifts and pledges. So new pledges and unpledged gifts. So new money, other money came in as well uh, that was already pledged to the, to the campaign. But over the next new few weeks, I know a number of you have been giving sacrificially and we're so thankful for that. And to be considering what your pledge will look like between now and Christmas. But a number of donors are coming through to see the building and they're coming through asking how much more they can help with. Would you be praying that over the next two weeks specifically, God would provide $1 million? That's my prayer. God, would you provide $1 million? There's four or five donors coming through that have that kind of capacity. And I'm always cautious in saying these things. I don't want to be, us to be disappointed if God chooses to do this a different way, but just be in prayer for God's provision. He could provide, be in prayer for us as, as well, specifically me as I meet with these, these donors and talk with them and just ask them uh, to consider walking alongside of us. And then next week, we're really excited to be in the building. It's looking amazing. And so we'll gather at 10. Parking is at Compass Community uh, Health Center. And we'll send this out in the email on Tuesday. And we can use Banana Rec Center and the school as well. And the health center is about as far a walk as the parking lot was to here this morning. It's not a far walk at all. So it's about as far as a walk from there. We come in, we need to be masked. So unless you have a medical reason to not be masked, you must wear a mask to be able to enter the building. It's just the bylaw and we need to follow it. Uh, in, in saying that, uh, we are going to sing. And so we are gonna be masked when we sing. So when we sit in our church, you'll be doing that. You may know that public health on October, on August 20th said that uh, singing was to be suspended unless it was adopted with mitigated measures. And so our adaptation with mitigated measures is that we will wear masks as we sing. And so we're delighted to do that. Our children will be with us so we'll be together uh, for the service, and that will be true um, through to Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, at least now at this point, we were able to do something with the grade ones to grade fives, which I know doesn't help some of you, but that's what we're able to do right now at that time. And so uh, we are looking forward to being together. We're gonna be celebrating communion. Again, it's to be with mitigated measures. Uh, and so you will find as you walk in next week, there will be individual communion cups with a wafer and a and a, a juice all attached in one thing. And you need to shake the juice a little bit, just be prepared. Or it doesn't taste nearly as good. I tried one, one day. Paul and I were like, should we try these ahead of time? I'm like, we sure should. And, uh, and so we tested them out. But you'll take one on the way in, they'll be placed out, you know, there'll be masks available if you don't have your mask, there'll be hand sanitizer, all that stuff. 
But the big thing is we're so excited to be able to celebrate our new building. And I want you to know a lot of people want to come in terms of guests and, and friends and family of yours. Next week, we're really just saying it's people who call Houston home. People who would say that we're regularly worshiping here to come because, because we know we're going to fill it. We can hold 150 in the auditorium uh, in terms of, of spatial distancing. We can hold another 70 or so uh, in the foyer area. It depends on who's signing up and structures and all that stuff. But we're really excited to gather. We're going to gather like that for two or three weeks. And then depending on the numbers, uh, the elders will make a decision as to whether or not through this season we need to move to two services. Uh, because as we'll be singing, sometimes an overflow uh, doesn't allow for that the same measure that we'd like. But we're so excited. We're excited and delighted with God's provision. The building's looking amazing. We're so thankful for the way that the Lord has uh, allowed us to have this. And so, and so I just want to say to each of you, thank you. I mean, through COVID, right, the Lord has powerfully provided for our church in terms of its general fund. And so we ended the year in the black. Now, obviously, there are a number of things we didn't spend money on. We took some measures to be careful about a variety of things. The government then provided for us for money for summer students to help with the move and to run a week at camp. I mean, that was incredible that they just chose to do that. I mean, we, we called and asked. I get it. But they said, yes, we'll do that. So they provided the funding to do that. And uh, and so we're so thankful for the way that that the Lord just has powerfully provided and is providing for this building as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. And we're thankful that next week, we get to celebrate in this facility that you've granted us. God, we are amazed that you have provided this facility and every step along the way you've provided for us. And so God, as we gather next week inside, would you bless us and be with us as we'll even tour the building after you be with us as we do so. And God, would you use this new facility as a place where those who know you will grow in their faith and knowledge of you and those who don't, God would be saved. We think of Paul and Diana, we thank you for Diana. Be with her and her siblings as they grieve the loss of their mom and as their family as they grieve the loss of a mother-in-law, of a grandmother, God, of a, of a great-grandmother. Would you just bless that entire family? And as they gather this week to celebrate her life and to mourn her passing in a very special way, may you walk with them. So God, we now turn our attention to your word asking that you would be with us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I heard Don Carson preach on John 6 a number of years ago, and I remember three questions he asked at the beginning that have always stuck with me. They just always struck me. The first was this. If you asked your children where their food comes from, what would they say? And in a city like Hamilton, most of our kids would say, well, you know, food basics, or goodness me, or Fortino's. They'd name a grocery store. Because we live in a society where our kids aren't growing their own plants. They're not raising their own animals. And so they would answer the question about the store by which they purchase goods. The second question I remember, I don't remember if I have these in order, but is why do we work? Why do we work? And the answer from most people is we work to buy stuff. We work to buy stuff. But in Jesus' day, it would have been a very different answer. Because 85% of their income would have gone toward food. 85% of the common person's income in Jesus' day would have gone to food. And you know that's true in most of the world today, right? When many people in the world are living le on less than $3 a day, most of their income is going toward food. Their shelters are simple and used just by the lay of the land. And then what happens if there's famine, flood, or drought? 
Well, for us, the prices go up. In Jesus' day, you starve to death. And so as we come to a passage like this and Jesus' provision of bread and then talking about how he's the bread of life, we realize we have a very different context. Because they would have understood bread coming from wheat from the land of which they were actually allowing the wheat to grow. They were farmers. They would have understood that if there was drought, there would have been no wheat to eat. And they would have understood that if they worked, they worked to eat. Even today, when you think of staple foods, there are, there are three main staple foods in the world, right? Corn, rice, wheat. And do you know that those three foods comprise of what two-thirds of humans eat every day? Two-thirds of what humans on the planet eat every day are from three staple foods, wheat, corn, and rice. So if you have your Bibles, John 6. Sometime after this, that means that it's happening after the previous chapter, chapter 5, but not necessarily immediately after. Jesus crossed over to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because he saw the signs, or they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside. He sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover festival was near. They have seen his signs. They are interested in Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus, the genie. They want to rub the magic lamp and be like, Jesus, do this, and Poofy does this, and Jesus, do that, and Poofy does this. They've seen the signs. They've seen him heal the sick. So they come up to Jesus. The other Gospels tell us this is the only miracle found in all four Gospels, with the exception of the resurrection. Only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, which tells you of its importance. The other Gospels tell us Jesus had been teaching all day. And then John tells us they'd gone up to the mountain to, to, with his disciples. And so he's gone up so that they can have some time alone. But the crowd follows. And John tells us that the Passover was near. John mentions the Passover three times in his gospel. Three different Passovers. This is the second one. This is important. Why? Because the Passover was the rescue from Egyptian slavery for the Israelites. The Passover was the provision of the Passover lamb on the 10th plague when God sent the angel to kill the firstborn of anyone where the blood of a Passover lamb was not spread over the doorposts. And God provides manna in the desert as the Israelites go to the promised land. So remember those three things, rescue from Egyptian slavery, provision of a Passover lamb and manna in a desert on the way to the promised land. Well, Jesus looks up, he sees the crowd coming toward him after he's been teaching all day. He says to Philip, where will we buy bread for all these people to eat? He only asked this to test him. He already knew what he had in mind to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to just have a bite. Again, what's being emphasized here is the price of food and the impossibility. I mean, no one could afford this, Jesus. Who could do this? Where would we get it from? I mean, this is impossible. There's no way this could happen. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, well, there's a boy here with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And how far will that go among so many? He said, there's a small lunch here. This was a, this was a, a peasant's lunch, in essence. These were probably two pickled fish. They were small. Not like some big thing when you hear about the fisherman says, yeah, it was, fish was like this. They weren't like this. A little boy did not bring these fish with him. 
you have two little pickled fish. And when we talk about loaves, it wasn't a loaf of bread. It was like dinner roll, these small little buns. Almost like a, the size of like a little, a little eclair or cream puff. Well, Jesus said, have everybody sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place. Again, that emphasizes it's Passover time. This emphasizes that it's March or April. This is in the spring of the year. They're not yet into the hot sun of summer where the grass is dried. There's lots of grass. So gather uh, those and have them sit down. There were about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves. He gave thanks. He distributed to all those who were seated. They could have as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And they gathered with them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Note, and, and Mrs. Crosby did a great job talking about some of this here, but that, that John here is emphasizing the abundance of what Jesus has done. They had as much as they wanted, verse 11. They had enough to eat, verse 12. There were pieces left over, again, verse 12. They filled 12 baskets, verse 13. John here, when you see a theme emphasized over and over again in a few verses, you realize that this is important to him. He wants everyone to understand the abundance of what Jesus has just done. And why 12 baskets? Well, possibly he's emphasizing that it's enough for all of Israel, for all of God's people, for the 12 tribes. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is a prophet. He's come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain, this time by himself, not with the disciples. So they see this miracle. They see Jesus feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Some would say maybe 20,000. I mean, if you look around us today at how many men are here, and then you add in women and children, that's what would have happened that day. There were men, and then there were women, and there were children. And so there would have been this great number of people that were there. Great, vast number of people that had gathered. And they want to make Jesus king by force. He knows that. He slips away. You see, they want Jesus to take over the Roman rule, to usurp the Roman authority, because the Jewish people are under the thumb of the Romans. They're under the Roman rule. They want him as Messiah to free them from that. And they don't understand he's come for a greater freedom. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat. They set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, the waters grew rough. They rode about three or four miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat. He was walking on the water. They were frightened, terrified. He said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where he was headed. Note a few things here. It was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. The Gospel of John has a number of themes for it. One of the themes is darkness and light, right? Jesus is the light that has come into the world, but the darkness has not understood it. Nicodemus meets Jesus at night. The dark night theme is prevalent through all of John. And here you have that it's dark and Jesus, the light, has not yet joined them. It's both a commentary on what is going on, because it is literally dark. Jesus is not yet with them. But John plays on these words all through his gospel. The disciples are just a few miles out, and they're terrified. 
they see someone walking on water. You may remember from other accounts, some, some of them say, is it a ghost? They're terrified. And then Jesus says, it's me, it's I, don't be afraid. Jesus says, I'm right here. You don't need to be afraid, it's me. They're in a storm. The waters have grown rough. And Jesus is just kind of walking right out on them. And as he walks out on those rough waters and gets into the boat, the boat, it says, immediately reached the shore. How did that happen? We don't know. Did a gust of wind come and just take it quickly? Did the boat just appear on shore? But the disciples get it. One of the interesting things in scripture is the theme of sea. Sea is always part of chaos, always part of disorder. And God is the one who always orders the sea, who brings it to stillness or peace or calm. You see that in the other account of the disciples being in the boat where it's going to break apart and Jesus is asleep. You see that in the creation account. The Spirit of God hovered over the what? The waters. And he called out what from the waters? Order. Let there be light. Let there be earth. Let there be land. He calls order out of chaos and the seas in Genesis 1 are representative of that chaos. For many of us, COVID has been a chaotic time for a variety of reasons. Alterations with jobs, wearing masks in indoors in public places, uh, fear mongering, uh, all kinds of things have happened. Some of us have experienced illness. Some of us have had friends and family experience illness. Some of us have friend, experienced friends and family passing away, sometimes because of COVID, sometimes with other causes. Diana's mom didn't pass away from COVID and yet, Everything they're doing this week is different than what would normally happen. Diana's mom was a well-loved woman. How many of us would have gone if we were able to? We would have. Amy and I would have. We'd have driven in. I know we're not alone, right? And so here, here everything's changed. And it feels like this great storm. And Jesus, even today, says to us, it is I. Don't be afraid. Well, the next day, verse 22 the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and Jesus had not entered it. Now you got to admit, Jesus goes off to the mountainside to pray and the disciples just abandon him. That's kind of, you know, obnoxious of them. There was only one boat. The disciples said, well, we'll take it. Jesus will figure it out. And so what does he do? He walked on water. But they had gone alone. They knew that. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks and the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there. So they got into those boats. They went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. They found him on the other side and they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus, how did this happen? How did you get across the lake? There was only one boat. No, Jesus isn't interested in their concern about his ability to perform miracles or be their genie in a lamp. He just doesn't care. Very truly, I tell you, he said, you're not looking for me. Not, sorry, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They want more food. Now, why do they want more food? Do they just want more food because they're hungry? Probably not. They had their fill just a few hours before. But if you were spending 85% of your income on food every day, and someone was able to give you your food, 
And now you no longer needed to purchase that food. You now have 85% of your income to spend on stuff. Does that make sense? They're looking for Jesus to provide for them food. So they don't have to work, or if they continue to work, they can work for stuff. They don't need to work for food. And Jesus gets it. You're not just coming because of the signs. You're not coming even now because I'm a miracle worker. You don't even get who I am. You're just coming because I did something for you and you want more of it. You ate the loaves, you had your fill. And he says, you don't get it. You're not to work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which I, the Son of Man, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus here says, you're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for something temporal, but I can give you something eternal. And in declaring that he can give something eternal, he's declaring that he has the prerogatives of God. That's what Jesus is saying right here. When he says, I, the Son of Man, can give you eternal life, the only being that can give eternal life is God and God alone. And when Jesus declares that he can give eternal life, he's saying, I'm equal with God. I have the same rights as God. I have the same prerogatives as God. And the Father's seal of approval is on me. You see, they wanted to make him king over the Romans. What they missed is he actually is the king over all, everything. Well, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Well, Jesus, what's the answer? What, what does God want us to do? You tell us and we'll do it. Give us some deed. Give us some task. Tell us something we should do and we'll just do it. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. To believe. What is belief? Belief is giving yourself to something. You give your life to that which you believe in. For some people, that's their family. They work and work and work for their family. For some people, it's their job. It's where they find their meaning, their purpose. They believe in their job. It's their education. For others, it's money. It's their talents. It's their ability. It's their good looks. It's their success. Belief is an amazing theme to the Gospel of John. In fact, it's John's predominant theme. How do we know that? Well, John tells us. John 20 says this. These, all of these things, John 20, 31, have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. John said, I wrote this book. He tells us why at the end of John. John 20, 31. I wrote this book that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 3, 16, when Jesus is encountering Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When Jesus is with Martha specifically, and he's about to raise Lazarus to life again, and Lazarus has died, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Belief, it's all through the gospel. And Jesus here is claiming that if you believe in him, if you shift your alliances, that's repentance, right? Shifting my alliance from whatever I'm believing will bring me hope or fulfillment or life to Jesus, that he will give you eternal life and satisfaction, that he will fulfill you fully. So they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? Or what will you do? Our, our ancestors, you know, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is preposterous. 
He just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. And now they say the next day, the next day, uh, uh, do you have a sign? Is there something you, you could do, Jesus? Like, could you show your power? Like, what? And then they have the audacity to quote scripture. They actually quote scripture to Jesus. They said, well, you know, maybe you could do something with bread. Because they're hung up on his provision of bread, so they no longer have to spend their money on it. Maybe you could do something with bread. You know, our ancestors, um, they ate manna in the wilderness. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So maybe you could do something with that. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was my father who gave you true bread from heaven. Or it, it is my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point. God can offer you a bread of which you'll never long to satisfy for anything again, of which you'll find yourself fulfilled. It's a true bread. And they all know, like they quote, knowing that it's close to Passover. And Jesus is telling them what? I am the true bread of life that will set you free from slavery to your sin. I am the true bread of life who will become your Passover lamb. And becoming your Passover land, I will satisfy you completely as the bread of life. Leslie Newbigin says this. This is a long quote. The deeds of Jesus, such as, as, as the one they have witnessed, are both mighty works and signs. They are effective actions which liberate people from disease, from hunger and death. And they are signs which point beyond these immediate effects to the kingly rule of God present in Jesus. The crowd has enjoyed the effect and they failed to see the sign. And the effect, like all effects, is transient. The hungry man is fed, but he hungers again. The sick man is healed, but he will die. The victim of oppression is delivered, but he will be, uh, become the slave of other principalities and powers, other oppressors. The visible acts of liberation are not to be made the prime object of desire or labor. They are signs pointing to a gift that is never exhausted, to a satisfaction that never passes. I've seen friends of mine explore Jesus over the years. Some people I've really grown to care for. And all they're interested in is him being their miracle worker. I've watched it. I've watched it with my own eyes. Where someone has had a mess. They're just in a mess, an abysmal mess of relationship, maybe money, maybe debt, maybe addiction. And I remember a friend of mine, right, a number of years ago, who many of you met, who found Jesus, quote unquote. And he got enough of Jesus to save his marriage. He got enough of Jesus to straighten out his life. He got enough of Jesus to save his business. And then he walked away. Now, he'd tell you to this day, he's still walking with Jesus. Like, his mom passed away this summer, and I've talked to him a number of times. And, and, and he'll tell you to this day, he's walking with Jesus. Right? The day his mom passed away, he called me, and all the family was there. He asked me to pray a prayer of blessing for them, asked me to take the funeral. He'll tell you to this day, he's walking with Jesus. But all he wanted was Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus in my time of need, Jesus the genie in the lamp. And I've met many people like that. I have many friends that I've watched come through and want Jesus because they can, he can do something for them. And Jesus says, you missed the whole point. What I want to do for you is save you. What I want to do for you is grant you eternal life. What I want to do for you is allow you to believe in me so that you'll never thirst or be hungry again. What I want you to do is believe in me. Sir, they said, 
give us this bread. Verse 35, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still don't believe. It's like the woman at the well, give me this drink of which I'll never thirst again. And Jesus says to them, as he said to her, he says to them, I am this bread. I am the bread of life. I am the satisfying one. That means in life, he's the one who will never leave or forsake us. It means in death, we can trust him because we know he's conquered it. Quickly as I close. And yet we know the world is searching, right? We hear it all the time. The poets of our day are the musicians. You've heard me quote these before. Sean Mendez, not the whole song, just a portion. Laying on the bathroom floor, feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and insecure. Give me something that I can take to ease my mind. Have a drink, you'll feel better. Take her home, you'll feel better. They keep telling me it gets better. Does it ever? Demi Lovato. A hundred million stories and a hundred million songs. I feel stupid when I sing. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's listening. I talk to shooting stars. I always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray. Why am I praying anyway? Nobody's listening. Anyone, send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. The someone we need. The all-satisfying one. The one who is the bread of life itself is Jesus Christ. And he longs to satisfy everyone who believes it is good news. It is good news. We turn from the things we have believed and turn from the things we have trusted and we trust in him. We trust in him. And we trust him through COVID. We trust him through illness. We trust him through job loss. We trust him in death. We trust him. I remember when Rick Chang was baptized back in December and he looked at all of us and he's a smart kid. And he said, I thought my academics would save me, but I realized and fulfill me. Didn't say save me, fulfill me, but I, I realized they wouldn't. That my academics couldn't fulfill me. He said he thought his athleticism would, but he broke in his arm, I think, and realized that he was even fragile and his athleticism wouldn't save him. I don't know if you remember, but he'd invited a number of friends to his baptism. Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim. He pointed to all of them and said to them, I implore you, I plead with you to believe in this all-satisfying one I have found, Jesus Christ. Remember when Dylan was baptized back in March? Right? One of the young ladies from our church had met him at their workplace back in the fall. Found that he, he, I believe 26 years old, had tried everything. Tried all kinds of things, every different kind of philosophy, all kinds of religion. She invited him to come out to Houston in the fall. God saved him. That's through the young adult retreat just really confirmed his faith. I remember talking to him before his baptism and saying, Dylan, tell me what's been happening. And he said, I tried everything. And I found that only Jesus satisfies. Jason, you and Jamie can come up. You see, he is the bread of life. And as his words, whoever comes to him will never go hungry. Whoever believes in him will never thirst. What a great God. What an amazing Savior. The one who will never leave or forsake us. The one who walks with us through the moment when we will close our eyes on this plane and open them in another and see his face. What a great day that will be. You know, that's what Diana's mom did this week, right? She closed her eyes here. When she opened them, she saw Jesus. Because years ago, decades ago, 
she came to the place of believing in him and realizing that he was the bread of life who could satisfy her so well that she'll never be hungry and quench her thirst so she always be satisfied. And today, she's fully satisfied in him. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are God, second person of the triune God. And we're thankful that you decided to enter into time and space and live among us. And that you offer yourself gloriously in a way that nothing else can satisfy, nothing else can fulfill. Not our jobs, not our careers, not our education, not our relationship, not anything. You alone, God, teach each of us to be fully satisfied by you. We ask this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.